This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to John 1, John chapter 1. Hey, let's learn some Latin. Let's learn some Latin today. Okay, a couple Latin phrases. Bonum util and bonum formosum. Bonum util, bonum formosum, bonum, B-O-N-U-M, util, U-T-I-L-E, and bonum formosum, F-O-R-M-O-S-U-M. Bonum util and bonum formosum. If you get the definitions down, which I'll explain here just in a minute, um, you'll love working this out in your marriages. Okay, bonum util means a profitable good to me. A profitable good to me. Bonum formosum means a beautiful good in itself. A beautiful good in itself. Now, you already know the significance of these terms and their application to the Christian life and their relevance for this sermon series. If you find out that your spouse married you for your money, or your looks, or your common hobbies, but did not marry you for who you were in and of yourself, you are a bonum util, a profitable good to me. They married you for what they can get out of you. But if you find that your spouse married you for you, who you are as a person, you are a bonum formosum, a beautiful good in itself. Oftentimes our interest in God is just bonum util. How can God be useful to me? And let's be honest, for many of us, the only use we have for God is a get out of hell free card. But if that's the extent of our interest in God, we are treating him as a bonum util, not a bonum formosum. You've married him for his money, not for who he is as a person. So in many ways, this series is a test. It's a test. Which is God to you? Bonum util or bonum formosum? Today we're pulling the curtain back to peer into the person of Christ. Now we're going to look at the work of Christ and his death next week. But today our primary focus is on the person of Christ, his nature. And to get us started, we're going to do a Bible study in John 1, a few verses from John 1. I hope you've got it open in front of you. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Three phrases 
that make up one of the most pregnant verses in all of the scripture. Now, when you hear the phrase, in the beginning, what do you think of? Genesis, yes? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, it's not a stretch at all to think that John is hearkening back to Genesis 1. But instead of saying, in the beginning, God, John says, in the beginning was the Word. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God was already there. Before the creation of the universe, God already existed. The same is true of the Word. In the beginning, the Word was already there. So the emphasis in the first phrase of this verse is on the pre-existence of the Word, the eternality of the Word. Second phrase, and the Word was with God. Now the word, the word with, this preposition with, may appear to be flyover country, but, but the fact The fact that the word is with God doesn't merely express coexistence, but active relationship. So whatever this word is, and we'll get to that momentarily, whatever this word is, the word is eternal and distinguishable from God, but in active relationship to God. Okay? Last phrase, and the word was God. The final phrase is emphasizing the godness of the word. The word possesses preexistence. The word is eternal. The word is in active relationship with God, but distinguishable from him. But also, the word is God. Not similar to, but actually God. The very first word of verse 2 is striking. He. <laughs> He. John identifies the word as a he. So this word is no mere personification of God, but a person who has existed from all eternity in active relationship with God and is God. (laughs) Very quickly, skip down to verse 14. The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. Now we come face to face with the word. The word is God incarnate. Jesus Christ. When the universe came to be, the son of God was already there. Active in creation. Before there even was a creation, the son of God was with the Father in active relationship to the Father. But the Son of God is not an inferior being. He is God. Now, why would John choose to use the term word to talk about the Son of God this way? It is interesting. Of all the ways John could have talked about the Son of God... Why does he talk about the Son of God this way? Well, if we stay with Genesis 1, which is where John begins, in Genesis 1, God's God's word, God's speech is effective. That is, he just speaks and things happen. He speaks and alters reality. He speaks and and alters reality in such a way that the reality he creates is both, both, both reflects and underscores what he's like. Now, human analogy can be helpful here. Your speech, when you speak, it's an expression of your thoughts. 
And thoughts expressed say something about you, the person. Jesus is the word. Jesus is God's ultimate expression of his thoughts. We could say Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate, the son of God incarnate, is God's ultimate self-expression. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate self-disclosure. Jesus, as the expression of God, says a lot, reveals a lot about God the Father. Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. A restatement for point of emphasis, Jesus was in a connected relationship with the Father before the universe began. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So in verses 1 and 2, we're hearing about Jesus' divine essence. Verse 3 begins to discuss Jesus' divine works beginning with creation. Anything that's been made owes its existence to the word. Jesus was instrumental in creation. Anything that came into being... Anything, anything, anything that came into being came into being through the word. This is why it's fair to look at Jesus and say he's both creator and redeemer. Verse four, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not Overcome it. Now, John, throughout all his writings, both in the gospel and in his epistles, loves to link light and life. And here, John is still working off Genesis 1. Very first words out of God's mouth in the creation account is what? Let there be light. Light. And a little later in the creation account, God placed lights in the sky to separate light from darkness, which set the stage for God to speak again his powerful word to create life. Light makes life possible. So here in John 1, John says, life is in the word. Life is in the word. This is why separation from God, the Father, God the Son, always results in death. Jesus is the source of both physical and spiritual life. Only those who come to Jesus for life have the ability to walk in the light. That is, in order for human beings to live moral lives in accordance with the will of God, they first must come to the source of life, the word of God incarnate. Skip down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The pre-existent, eternal, fully God, but distinguishable from God, creator became flesh. Now the phrase made his dwelling among us is literally tabernacled, the word tabernacled. 
We're going to look at this in great detail next week. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was a place where God explicitly manifested his presence among his people. So the word, which becomes flesh, is God's very presence among us. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That alone ought to be enough to fuel many, many minutes of worship. But I'll say more. Let me work through these things. Three things. The humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and some more Latin. Cure Deus homo. Why a God-man? I'm not going to spend a ton of time working through the first two points, uh, but I do want to clearly establish those because we need to understand that in order to answer the question, cure Deus homo. Why the God-man? If Jesus isn't fully man and fully God, the gospel is lost and so are we. If there is no God-man, there is no gospel. Let's look first at the humanity of Christ. John tells us Jesus is God incarnate, God made flesh, God the Son incarnate. He was a first century Jewish man. He spoke of his body, his hands, his feet, his blood, his bones, both before and after his resurrection. Jesus was born like all other human babies, even though his conception was unique. He grew from childhood to adulthood, both physically and mentally. He suffered in his body and died. The New Testament portrays Jesus exhibiting a full range of human emotions, needs, and characteristics. He was moved to pity, compassion, love, and affection. He was distressed. He became angry. He experienced joy. He got annoyed. He was surprised and disappointed. He experienced hunger and thirst, fatigue and weariness. He offered up prayers to God with loud cries and tears. And he was able to have these human experiences because his human nature included a human soul and a human psychology, including a human will and a human mind. Now, the the full humanity of Christ hasn't always been embraced. In the first four centuries, after, immediately after the life of Christ, there was circulating at that time a teaching called docetism. Docetism. It taught that Jesus only appeared to be human, but wasn't actually. Kind of like the, uh, the holodeck, Star Trek, the holodeck. Like a real person, but not really. Appeared, but not really. Docetism taught that the material creation is evil. Therefore, Jesus could not have become fully human without corrupting his nature. So serious was this particular teaching, the apostle John condemned it. 1 John chapter 4, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh 
is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. So in the strongest possible language, John condemns any notion that God the Son was not fully human. The fact that Jesus was fully human has far-reaching implications, which we'll look at soon. But it's worth noting here that God becoming flesh shows us how much God values the material world. In Jesus, God gets a body to redeem both body and soul. Second, the deity of Christ. The Apostle Paul describes it this way, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the fullness of deity, the exact imprint of God's nature in the attributes he possesses. The New Testament presents Jesus having the moral attributes of God. He is the definition and measure of love. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the holy one. And the wrath of Jesus is the same as the wrath of God. Jesus came as the wisdom of God, with the authority of God, such that all his teaching was and is trustworthy. The New Testament writers also describe, ascribe to Christ the incommunicable attributes of God, those that are unique to God alone. For example, the Son shares in the Father's eternity. He existed with the Father before creation. He shared glory with the Father before the world existed. The Son came in the flesh and possesses omnipotence and immutability. Along with these divine attributes, the New Testament also affirms that Christ shares equally with God in his divine rule and his reign over all creation. He exercises unrivaled dominion over all things, including all human and angelic authorities. And as a result of his triumphant work in redemption and reconciliation, Jesus now sits on the throne, sharing universal lordship over every created rule, every authority, every power, and every dominion. If we get our theology wrong about Jesus, it has catastrophic ripple effects. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, was particularly strong in this respect. What we believe, what you believe about Jesus has consequences. What you believe about Jesus matters. Now, the deity of Christ hasn't always been believed. In 325 AD, the church rejected something called Arianism. Arianism is the forerunner to the Jehovah's Witness. A man by the name of Arius taught that God the Son was at one point created by God the Father, and before that time, the Son did not exist. 
Though the Son existed before the rest of creation, he is still not equal to the Father in all his attributes. He may be said to be like the Father or similar to the Father in his nature, but he cannot said to be of the same nature as the Father. Of course, the teaching of Arius and the Jehovah's Witnesses do not make any sense in light of John 1. So why the God-man? Curdeus homo. In the 11th century, Anselm of Canterbury famously asked, why did God become man? Why did God become man? It's an important question because it takes us into the rationale of the incarnation and therefore into the gospel itself. Now, Anselm's answer was that God the Son became man to fulfill God's plan to save sinners by making satisfaction for their sin. No less can be said. But the scriptures actually present us with a remarkable diversity of answers to that question, and I'm only going to scratch the surface. Why the God-man? Why did Jesus have to be fully God, fully man? Not half and half. It's not creamer. Fully God, fully man. Why do you have to be both? I'll mention four. First, to reveal the Father to us. To reveal the Father to us. We saw it in John 1. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. Now, Jesus has an even more explicit answer, pithy answer in John 14, 9. The Word, uh, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The Word of God incarnate, the Son of God incarnate, is the exegete of the invisible God. He is the proper revealer of the invisible God. If Jesus isn't both fully God and fully man, this cannot be said. Now, just briefly, it's, it's a slight tangent, but I want us to meditate on the significance of, of Jesus, the person of Christ, revealing the Father. Okay. Now, I realize we're already in the deep end of the pool, but we're going to go a little bit deeper with this. The very nature of the tripersonal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, means he transcends culture. He transcends culture. Because he's the creator, he existed before the universe, and therefore he existed before there was what we call culture. In order for there to be a culture, there has to be a creation. He exists before all of that. Therefore, the tripersonal God stands outside of not just space and time, but culture itself. He transcends culture. One of the many things this means then is that God's native language is not English. 
It's not even Greek or Hebrew. Question. What language does the tripersonal God speak within himself? Before the world began, we're told the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father. What language did they use? It's not English. It's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. What language was it? I have no idea. (laughs) But the very nature of it would suggest a transcultural language. Which means it's one we don't understand and one likely we could not understand. Because we are culture bound. Okay. Have you ever tried communicating with someone who doesn't speak your language? Ever done that? Ever tried to communicate with someone who doesn't speak your language? It can't be your spouse. Don't be, don't be going there. <laughs> don't be going there. <laughs> uh, several years ago, I led a men's missions trip to Peru. And um, it was fantastic. It was wonderful. We, we, uh, we hung out with about a dozen uh, men from the Alliance Church in Callao, which is, if you ever fly into Lima, you're actually flying into Callao. The church is just a few blocks from the airport. And um, so we got, to, we got to hang out with the same group of guys for about a week as we were doing grunt work. Uh, helping to build a retreat center. And um, the, the pro- we spent a lot of time on the bus as a result of this because the retreat center was you know, two, three hours out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, on the bus, I, I just I sat next to William. His name, William? He was cooking for us that week. Um, I, you know, I had two years of Spanish in high school but you all know how that goes. And so <laughs> the whole bus ride up there, two, three hours. <sighs> I want to get to know William. I'm having a hard time. And I'm sure this, he could say the same thing. I'm picking up bits here and there, bits here and there. Bits. I mean, two hours, you know, you, you barely get past, you know, what's your favorite season of the year? much less what moves your soul. (laughs) Communicating and understanding language is vital to advancing relationship. Communicating and understanding language is vital to advancing relationship. What language does God speak? And what did he speak? To communicate with us. This book is an example of gracious condescension. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit saying, they don't know the language we speak. They could never understand it. But we want to know them so much. We want them to know us so much. We're going to speak in a language they can understand. The fact that we have scripture in a human language that can be understood says something about God. He wants us to know him. He wants to communicate with us. He wants to tell us about himself. The fact that we have God in flesh, the Son of God incarnate, takes that up ten more notches. God so desires for you to know him, he comes in the form of the most intelligible human communication possible, a human being speaking a culture-bound language. Professor Mine put it this way. He said, do you want to know what the character of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the holiness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the wrath of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the forgiveness of God is like? Study Jesus. Do you want to know what the glory of God is like? Study Jesus all the way to that wretched cross. Study Jesus. If Jesus was not fully human, I'm not sure his revelation of God would be understandable or intelligible or relatable. If Jesus wasn't fully God, then his revelation of God wouldn't be God. In order to truly reveal the Father to us, he has to be the Son of God incarnate in the flesh. Second, why the God-man? To redeem us. Galatians 4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Interesting, Paul would draw that to our attention. Why specifically highlight Jesus' humanity? Why drill down into that point? Jesus, I want you to know, Jesus was born of a woman. He's human. Let's keep reading. Why? Born under the law. So not only is he a human being, he's also a Jewish man living under the requirements of the law. For what purpose? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Throughout his life, Jesus submitted to all the requirements of the law. He succeeded where all others before failed and all others since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. This is representative obedience. Core to the gospel is something that you know, all know by now. You've heard me say time and again. Core to the gospel is the idea that Jesus lived the perfect life you and I should have lived. Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus succeeded where we failed. Romans 5, Paul puts it this way. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people... He's talking about Adam, one trespass, Adam's trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. So also one righteous act, Jesus, resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, 
So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ qualified him to be our redeemer. Do you see how if either the deity or the humanity of Christ is diminished or lost, the entire gospel is lost? Third, to be a great high priest and substitute sacrifice. Book of Hebrews puts it this way, for surely it is not angels Jesus helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, to help Abraham's descendants, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The book of Hebrews is rich in Old Testament quotation and imagery. In fact, if you want to know how the whole Bible is put together and hangs together, go study the book of Hebrews. On the day of atonement, and this happened just once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place, bringing the blood of a bull and a goat with him to sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant before the Ark of the Covenant in order to cleanse Israel from their sin. Now picture this. Author of Hebrews is saying, now Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest who on the day of atonement entered the most holy place, but instead of bringing the blood of a bull and a goat, instead brought his own blood in his own body and became the sacrifice. Using his own blood to cleanse us from our sin. Jesus is both the great high priest and the sacrifice. Now the high priest, this is important, the high priest had to be an Israelite because he was representing the people of Israel before God. If the high priest was not an Israelite, the whole process was pointless because a non-Israelite cannot represent the people of Israel. Jesus as high priest means he became one of us. He became a human being because it was the only way he could represent human beings before God. This is why, by the way, angels are irredeemable. Once they sin, it's over for them. This is why the scriptures say angels long to look into the mysteries of the gospel. What is this thing that redeems human beings? Both Paul and Hebrews state the importance of Jesus' righteous humanity for his saving work. If Jesus had sinned, if Jesus had sinned, He could no more die for your salvation than I could die for yours or you could die for mine. He could not have died in our place and paid the debt to justice that we owed. If he had not been God, his death would have come up short in paying the debt to justice. One more. Why the God-man? To model true humanity If you want to study the passages of Scripture, by the way, in the New Testament that give us a high Christology, John 1, which we looked at, Philippians 2, which I'm going to read in a minute, Colossians 1, which Keith read, Hebrews 1, which I read a little bit of, 
John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Philippians 2, Paul writes this, in your relationships with one another, right? He's writing to a church, writing to a church just like ours, local church, city of Philippi. He's writing to them, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Okay, great. What's that? Here it is. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this passage brings the incarnation of the Son of God to the fore and applies it to Christian behavior, to model true humanity. And Paul articulates the journey of Christ on our behalf from eternity into time, back into eternity. And it rehearses for us the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has always existed. It shows us Jesus enters into space and time as a Son of God incarnate and then glorified. But Paul's point is a pastoral one. There are problems in the church. There's problems in this church in Philippi. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. In other words, he's saying, look, unity is needed here. Unity is needed. There's a problem in this church. And he's saying, your problem is you're not modeling true humanity. So let me show you what model that true humanity looks like in Jesus Christ. Philippians 4 illustrates the problem. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Sounds like they're not. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So understandably, Paul seeks a change in the attitudes of the people who are part of this church. So here's his exhortation that comes right before the verses we read that talk about Jesus and his modeling of true humanity. Here's what he says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So Paul uses Jesus' gracious condescension, his great humility, both in his incarnation and his death, to show us we as believers are to be like-minded with Christ. Humble other person-centered, self-sacrificing. Jesus needed to be fully human if he was to model for us true humanity. 
Now, all that we've done today is stare at Christ. Not, not really probe deeply into his work on our behalf. We're going to do that next week. But that's because we don't want Jesus simply to be a bonum util, a profitable good to me, but a bonum formosum, a beautiful good in himself. It's a sign of growth when you're able to stare at Christ, stare at his humanity, and marvel. It's a sign of growth when you're able to stare at the deity of Christ and marvel. Austin Phelps writes of watching people in the Royal Gallery at Dresden sitting for hours before a single masterpiece painting. Some of you might be art museum types where you make the rounds and you're able to stare at a piece of painting for hours on end. He writes, weeks are spent every year in the study of that one work of Raphael's, the Sistine Madonna. Lovers of art cannot enjoy it to the full till they have made it their own by prolonged communion with its matchless form. It's a painting. Lovers of it can't enjoy it till the full to the full until they have made it their own by prolonged communion with its matchless form. I've got something that can match it. He tells of a conversation with one of the painting's admirers who said he spent years looking at the painting. And catch this. <laughs> Still found it possible over and over to, quote, discover some new beauty and a new joy. It's a painting. Years, years, and still found it possible to discover some new beauty and a new joy over a painting. How much more should we give this kind of patient attention to gazing, pondering, marveling at Christ? Do you desire to have prolonged communion with the matchless form of Jesus Christ? Phelps asked this question, what painting could be anything like Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an immeasurable blessing it is to be able to know you through your Son, who is the radiance of your glory and the exact representation of your being. Thank you for showing us your righteousness, holiness, goodness, and love through Jesus. Allow us to see the beauty, majesty, and supremacy of our Lord that we may find our hearts captivated by who he is. 
And through this, Father, stoke the embers of our worship of Christ into a raging fire that cannot be quenched. We ascribe him all the glory, honor, and praise now. In your name, amen.